Well, we go back to uh, Galatians 4. And um, I told you in the spring that it would probably take us until January. And um, it still is looking like that. Um, uh, because next week we run into a roadblock and we're going to stop and pause. But we'll get there next week, Lord willing. Um, we're, he continues in this, um, this allegory that he's using, an event, a story out of uh, Genesis 16, 17, and 21. He uses that story of Hagar and, and Sarah and, and Ishmael and Isaac. He's continuing to use that. And we've, we've kind of worked our way um, um, through verse 26. And so tonight I want to draw your attention to verse 27 and 28. So let me, uh, let me read those two and see what we can do with them. Um, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud. You who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate, uh, children of the desolate one, will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Okay, guys. Um, first of all, uh, this um, this this text that's quoted from Isaiah. We'll come back to it in a minute, but. Um, it's, it's said of or about or describing uh, Sarah, the 90-year-old mother of, um, of Isaac. And, and I want to make one quick observation uh, that is really not, um, it's, it's a bit extraneous to the, to the main message of the allegory, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a point worth making over and over again. I've made it before, and... and um, <laughs> I'm not sure uh, I've made it very well. But um, again, this is not particularly uh, uh, tied to the message of the allegory, but just take a look at verse 27, and you'll notice that um, uh, rejoice barren one who does not bear, um, break forth and cry aloud for who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one. Obviously, in view um, of the author of that statement is... Um, women's childbearing um in sarah's day uh, a woman's worth consisted entirely in her ability to bear a child uh barrenness um was um the the worst curse of all for a woman to be barren and um you uh, modern sophisticated intelligent women say um Boy, I'm glad I don't live in a culture like that, um, a, uh, a male-dominated, oppressive, hierarchical <clears throat> uh, culture like that. Boy, I'm glad I don't live in those days. Well, ladies, not so fast. Um, you have allowed your culture to do the same thing to you that Sarah allowed her culture to do to her, and that is to shift to the, uh, the locus of your, of your worth, of your value. Um, it may not be childbearing, although childbearing is right up there or close to the top. But there are other things like um, <clears throat> beauty or thinness or, um, or sensuousness. Uh, my value as a woman is uh, tied to my sensuousness or my, my physical uh, appearance. Gang, um, both cultures... Uh, try to um, convince you 
as a woman, that your worth is found in something other than your union with Christ. And when it does convince you of that, um, it just contributes to our overall mental illness. Um, that my worth depends on me being able to bear a child. Oh, no, 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 we don't, we're too sophisticated with that. No, but my worth depends on how I look. Um, how much weight I've gained, or um, whether I'm uh, considered sensual. It's a trap, ladies. Gentlemen, we have our own little issues. But ladies, um, Sarah was um, hailed from a culture where the culture established the worth of a woman based on something other than their identity in Christ, and your culture has done the same thing to you. And uh, when, when you buy into that, you are, you are susceptible to all kinds of um, unnecessary pain because you're deriving benefit, you're deriving uh, identity from the wrong source. That's the message that I, I just wanted to start with, one that, that I've said before. Ladies, um, in uh, college, you were um, you were quite the the stuff, but then you got married and you um, you had three babies, and now you've gained thirty pounds. Now, what are you? Is there less value now to who you are? Well, guys, it's a trap, and I um, I hope I hope that you'll avoid it. Um, my identity is not based on, it's a good thing, um, my appearance. Um, it's based on my, my Savior. So um, that's where we have to return again and again and again. Okay, enough of, enough of that. <clears throat> to the text. Guys, um, that verse 27 is a quote from Isaiah 54. Uh, <clears throat> By the way, I should tell you that um, those of you who've been around a while know that come fall and spring, I struggle with the stuff that's in the air and my voice gets cro- uh, croaky. Um, that's all that's going on. Um, <clears throat> that text was um, written, it's found in Isaiah 54 verse 1. And I want you to think with me for a moment, just historically, um, I'm going to draw Israel again. Um, <clears throat> I'm getting pretty good at this. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah. Oh, what happened? Oh, okay. Yeah, there it is. Okay, so uh, there's the Sea of Galilee, and this is the Dead Sea, and Jerusalem is over here. And uh, Guys, you've got to think with me just historically, and, and, and this is probably information you already have and already know, but just kind of bear with me for a second. Um, <clears throat> gang first king of Israel was Saul. You know, Saul didn't do so good, and uh, he ultimately died on the battlefield, and David takes over. David takes over. He does great. He unites all of Israel, and, <clears throat> and then uh, he dies. His son takes over, Solomon, and the, uh, the very pinnacle of uh, national success was under Solomon. Then Solomon dies. <clears throat> His son, Rehoboam, takes over. Um... Rehoboam was really unwise. 
and dealt with a, a, a group of people and was really harsh with them. As a result of his stupidity, the nation of Israel was cut in half. You had the northern kingdom and you had Judah on the south. <clears throat> Jerusalem was the capital of Judah and um, uh, Samaria was the capital of um, the northern kingdom. All right. Um, in about, and I, I, these years might be wrong, you've got, you got Syria over here and you've got us Syria over here and you've got Babylon over here. Uh, yeah, B- Babylon. Um, about 722, the Assyrians um, defeat this section of, of Israel. That's nice. <clears throat> um, it has a, anyway, uh, the, the northern kingdom uh, falls to the Assyrians, all right? The southern kingdom lives on for about another 150 years. <clears throat> and then the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar come and destroy this, I mean, burn Jerusalem and drag the citizens of the southern kingdom all the way over here to Babylon. Um, okay? They're there for 70 years. It's called the Babylonian captivity. Now, guys, I'm, I'm telling you all of that to try and locate that verse, 27. Um, it comes from Isaiah 54.1. <clears throat> and Isaiah 54.1 historically <clears throat> was written to the captives who came back <clears throat> after the 70 years of exile. Okay, are, are, are you there? 70 years, now they're coming back. You know, under Ezra and Nehemiah and that, and that crowd? <clears throat> Maybe I should wait. <clears throat> okay. Actually, I'm, I'm done with that. Um, guys, all I'm trying to do is, is locate for you historically when Isaiah wrote this. He wrote it to a group of exiles who were on their way back from 70 years of captivity. To those exiles, Isaiah says this. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, why would that be descriptive or meaningful to a group of exiles who are coming out of Babylon back into Jerusalem or back to to reestablish Israel? What Isaiah is saying to the exiles who are returning is, you still have a future. You might be barren now, but you still have a future. Um, That which appears barren, a bunch of exiles coming back from uh, Babylon, is going to produce. There's going to be um, a, 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 um, a future... For these 
ex-captives, Israel, who was supposed to be a blessing to the world. She wasn't. She was defeated by the Babylonians and dragged into captivity. That barren Israel is once again going to be productive. She's going to yield. How is she going to do that? How is is a bunch of exiles coming back from Babylon, how are they going to be productive? Again, that's the point that Paul's making. (laughs) Hold on. That Sarah is similar to the captives who are coming back to Israel. How is Sarah going to be productive? How is a barren 90-year-old woman going to be productive? And how is a bunch of exiles, barren, how are they going to be productive? The same thing will be necessary for both of them. God will have to intervene. He will have to produce fruit supernaturally for them and for her. Um, God, Sarah is going to bring forth children because God is going to do something supernatural where, where there were no children. There's going to be children for Sarah and for them. And both of them, in both instances, God will have to do it. Gang, the Apostle Paul is taking an Old Testament passage intended for Israel. Historically, that's who it was first written to. He's taking that passage and he's using it to describe Sarah. And the common element between the two of them is supernatural birth. There's a similarity between a returning exile and a 90-year-old woman. The common element between them is that if they're ever going to produce anything, God is going to have to intervene and bring life out out of deadness. God is going to have to produce fruit supernaturally. So Sarah... Um, as Paul is using it in his allegory, Sarah is a picture of how God reverses deadness and brings out of it life. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate are going to be more than the children of of those of the husband. How's that going to happen? Well, he's going to do for Sarah what he would later do for Israel. He is going to bring spiritual life out of that which was dead. Gang, in this story from Genesis 16 and 17, you've got two women. One is young, she's fertile, and the other is old and barren. 
And God chooses to save the world through the barren one. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how grace works. Um, God overturns everything conventional and does something unexpected, unpredictable, and supernatural to the end that he gets all the glory. Guys, you would think that if there's going to be any kind of large-scale productivity, it would come from the young and the fertile one. But no. God overturns the convention and says, I'm going to save the world through a barren womb. I'm going to intervene. I'm going to bring life out of deadness for her and for them. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how grace works. It is always something that overturns um, the conventional. You know, um, I had this thought, and I'm not sure my exegesis is altogether sound, in, in, but I'm going I'm to use it anyway. I think it is. Um, do you remember the name Samson? Samson and Delilah. Well, Samson was a wreck. He was a wreck of a man. I mean, he had, he had women problems. I mean, he was, um, he was chasing down every woman he could find, and he turns to his daddy one time, and he sees this girl, and he, and he kind of grunts. I remember when our girls were living in our house, and we used to call guys grunters. <coughs> you know, they would just, well, uh, Samson kind of looked at this woman, and he said, get her. Turns to his daddy and says, get her. What a, what a horrible thing to say. Anyway, dad does it. But then he's got to go in and have a, have a wedding ceremony. Remember, he goes, and there's 30 guests at the wedding ceremony. And he poses a riddle for them. Remember that? Remember the riddle? And, and here's the riddle. <clears throat> Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. You remember, on his way down there, he saw this lion that was on, dead on the side of the road, and there's a bunch of bees had set up inside the carcass, and they had produced some honey, and he reached inside the dead carcass and got him some honey and ate it. And so he comes back with this, this riddle. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. What, the, what in heaven's name is that all about? Why did God waste my time by including something as nonsensical out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. I mean, why would the Holy Spirit include that in his book? Because, ladies and gentlemen, it's an illustration of how grace works. Grace is always backwards. You know? Out of the eater came something to eat. <laughs> and, and, and out of the strong came something sweet, because grace is always turning things upside down. It's always taking the predictable, setting it aside, and we're replacing it with the unpredictable. That's what grace, that's what God did for Sarah. He did it for Israel, and he's done it for you. He's done it for us. Gang, grace is confusing. It's like a riddle. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not how things work. I know how things work. 
I mean, if anybody's ever going to get right with God, here's how you got to do it. You've got to, um, you've got to, you've got to work in such a way that you, um, that you balance the books and that you, um, and that, th- th- that you earn what you get because that's how conventional wisdom thinks. And so God, in, in, a, in a series of unexpected reversals, he simply does not operate the way we think it should. Left to ourselves, we would, we would author a gospel that is purely merit-based. And so what does God do? He upends, overturns all of convention and replaces it with this thing called grace. It's like, hmm, out of the eater something to eat. It's backwards. It's just not conventional. Now, guys, law keepers, you know, the sons of Hagar, oh, my goodness, there's a whole bunch of them. And um, they're always the majority. Um, now, according to this allegory, they end up being slaves, but they're fertile. They're strong. They're, they're, they're morally able. They're law-abiding citizens, and they have lots of children. But God saves the world through somebody who's not morally able, in fact, whose womb is dead, and cannot um, uh, uh, produce something in a normal um, by, by normal means. Um, and it's that one who begets children without... She begets children because of a supernatural intervention from God. Um, for, the, for the sons of Hagar, who needs God's supernatural intervention? I don't need that. Um, religion says that salvation is only for the good and the productive and the fit. And the gospel overturns that and says that reconciliation with God comes for those who stop trusting in their fitness. They stop this confidence in their abilities. And then those people, God does something supernatural. Now guys, um, the children of promise, um, mothered by Sarah, are always the minority. Um, she seems barren, but uh, the, 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 the point of the, Paul quoting this Isaiah passage is, um, she seems barren, but what God is going to do is going to do something supernatural, and the, um, the barren are going to be fruitful. Um, he's going to bring life out of deadness. Um, God brings her womb to life, which is a, an illustration or a, um, a, a parable of what he does for every Christian that, has, that, that there is. He brings 
something to life that previously was dead. That's what he's done in our lives, guys. Um, so he can even stand in front of a tomb, like he did with Lazarus, and he can say, he can speak into that deadness in there and say, Come on out. Because that's what that's what he does in the case of Sarah, that's what he did in the case of Israel, and that's what he does in the case of me and you. Um, notice in this text who it is that is to rejoice. It's the one who is seemingly barren. The fertile one will end up condemned. It's grace that goes to the barren, which um, it's, it's the barren who end up creating sons that are free. Guys, the point is, grace works backwards. It doesn't work like anything that you um, uh, have cooked up yourself. Any kind of man-made religion, like all of the rest are, um, uh, they work on, uh, on instinct, on human um, ingenuity, and yet grace works backwards. It's opposed to that. And it calls men to lay down their confidence in human uh, ability. Um, Sarah is called barren because her child was born supernaturally, without reliance on human accomplishment. Gang, that same kind of thing has happened to all of us. People who have finally come to the place where they, where they finally realize that it is not by human uh, strivings that we get into a relationship with God. Guys, just to make clear, um, a Christian works, but he doesn't work to become a son. I want to show you this. He, he's, he's already one of the... If you've, if you've still got a Bible if, uh, available, turn see if you can find Deuteronomy 14 real, fit, real quick. Deuteronomy 14. <clears throat> um, just look at it, um, uh, you know. Deuteronomy 14 is all about food laws. Um, what you can eat, what you can't eat, what you shouldn't eat, please don't eat it, you can't eat that, don't drink this. All of these dietary regulations issued to Israel but I want you to notice how the chapter opens. You are the sons of the Lord your God. <laughs> he goes out of his way to say, by the way, you're already sons. I'm not asking you to keep these dietary regulations so that you can become a son. I'm saying that because you are a son, you eat like this. Remember, we used this same illustration. It was old 8, 10, 12 chapters back. It was over human sexuality. All these rules about sexuality. But they always begin the same way. You are sons. Now live like this. Not, if you want to be a son, you're going to have to live like this. We work. We obey. We have a different life. But it's not so that we can gain sonship. You are the sons of the living God. Now eat like this. Um, if I am one of those, then this is how I reflect that in my obedience. 
but my obedience. Guys, um, Christians work not for a position. They work from a position. Um, I don't work to gain a position. I'm already in the position and thus I work. But I got in that position. I became one of those sons by a supernatural intervention on the part of God where he took that which was dead and he brought it to life. Gang, you may not realize that that happened to you, but I'm here to tell you it did. In fact, I think you know um, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 opens up this way. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Yeah, you were. And out of deadness, because of a supernatural intervention on the part of God, he's brought you to life. You didn't get there by working like we would have thought would be the right way. No, grace reverses that. Turns it upside down. It rejects the conventional and replaces it with something that is altogether something that God accomplishes. And that's called grace. That's, what, um, that's how he accomplishes any productivity. He grants life to the dead. Spiritually, ladies and gentlemen, before you became, before you had eyes to see, you were a dead man spiritually. And he granted you life. That's what he did for Israel. That's what he did for Sarah. That's what he did for you. That's what he does for me. One other quick thing, and I'll quit. Um, in verse 28, Paul turns to the Galatians. He's, he's just about finished with this whole allegory. He's not quite finished. We'll see a little bit more of it next week. He's just about finished with the allegory, but he turns in verse 28 and he says, turns to the Galatians and he says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Um, guys, you, like, um, like Isaac, are children of promises. That, that's what the Galatians were. That's what you are. Um, he, um, he reminds them that they came into this position that they enjoy through the, through the keeping of a promise that God made and ultimately was fulfilled in the finished work of Christ. That's what, that's what this whole allegory is about, guys. To denounce this, this scheme that God is going to pursue uh, building his kingdom through uh, normal methods like Abraham impregnating Hagar. He's not going to do it that way. That makes sense. It works, she's fertile, she's young, and it requires absolutely no intervention on the part of God. I don't need God for that. But to produce a son of the promise, God's going to have to do that. So he turns to the Galatians and he says, you're all sons of the promise. How did they get there? Because God did something. He, it's not that you did something for him and he thus owned you. 
He did something. And he took spiritually dead entities and he brought them to life. That's the point of using Sarah. That's the point of using this Isaiah 54 passage. That if any life is ever going to exist, God is going to have to supernaturally create it. So my dear brother and sister in Christ, if you're alive, it's because he brought you out of death and granted you life. Consequently, any kind of human boasting, it should be eliminated. Because as um, Jonah once said, salvation belongs to the Lord. Yeah. You are who you are because God did this work in you. We are who we are because God brought life out of death. And that's the gospel. That's grace. Let's quit. Our Father, I I pray that you will use the the words of the Apostle Paul, and and genius they are, to um, once again remind your people that um, this whole work of redemption is because of you intervening um, into into the life of the spiritually dead and bringing them to life by a supernatural granting of the new birth. Father, um, might that information humble us? Might it cause us to see the great work that you have wrought in us? And might we, like those people in the book of Deuteronomy, find that all of life, our sexuality, our diets, everything, should reflect that we are sons and daughters of the promise. We are, we are Christians because you have granted us life, and we bless you for it. We make our prayer, of course, in the name of Christ Jesus the Lord. Amen. There is dessert for you, and if you'll mention my name, <coughs> it's free. <clears throat>